Good day. It's tractor time, and we're back after harvest to get into the swing of recording and broadcasting interviews. We have some of your favorite people uh, in line here in the next couple months, uh, all in sustainable agriculture, all knowledgeable, all experts, uh, some even celebrities, but I'll, I'll keep that as a secret. You'll have to tune in to figure out who that is. Uh, today might qualify as one. Uh, we're certainly coming back with some thunder after a bit of a break. Our guest today is a good friend. His name is John Kempf. That should trigger some excitement. For those who don't know, he's the founder of Advancing Eco Agriculture, which is a crop consulting company, and he's an expert in the field of biological and regenerative farming. He's a resident of Middlefield, Ohio, a farmer. Uh, he remains a part of the Amish community, uh, and he's always sought alternative approaches to, uh, to growing crops. Uh, we're so lucky to have him on, on our podcast today. Uh, he, If you missed today or want to hear more after today, you can certainly follow him and attend our uh, 2017 Acres USA Eco Ag Conference and Trade Show in Columbus, Ohio this year, December 5th through 8th. John will be leading a two-day class on biological agriculture. Uh, his class is by far our most popular. In fact, it's filling up fast. It might be sold out by the time this airs, but uh, please call us, let us know, uh, email us, and we'll uh, see if we can get you in the spot at the conference this year. So uh, what's going to follow here is the interview with John Kempf. Um, thank you for joining us again. This is Tractor Time. John Kemp, uh, welcome to Tractor Time. Thank you for having me. I'm glad to be here. Uh, can you tell us, uh, I guess, get us started this this morning, and it is this mor- uh, morning here at least, it's probably not morning there, but can you tell us where you are in Ohio and what is going on in the agriculture community that you're looking at out your window? Uh, right now, I am on a farm in northeast Ohio, about 45 minutes outside of Cleveland, and I'm uh, looking out a window at a fall harvest season for mixed vegetable crops and fruits. So we have about 20-acre mixed orchard with cherries and apples. Obviously, cherry harvest is long over, but um, apple harvest, we're kind of right in the middle of it, making cider. And for all the fall crops, brassicas, cabbage, cauliflower, broccoli, etc. So it's a beautiful fall. We've had some really spectacular fall weather. Harvest season is going, is going quickly and going well. That's that's fantastic. It's, it's snow just hit the ground here today, so the I, I know that the uh, farmers here were super busy over the weekend trying to get uh, get done in time for this first snow, or get as much done as they could before this first snow out there. So when when do you guys see your uh, frost come in out there? We're actually in the snow belt just south of Lake Erie, so okay. our average first frost date is October 10. Oh, we wow. had we had our first frost uh, actually this year about a week ago. I almost don't exactly this was Sunday. Those last last Sunday in September, and um, so it's been really nice fall so far. And as far as the snow goes, being from the snow belt, all I'll say is we're really happy to share. You're welcome to have it. <laughs> yeah, we like it out here. Uh, or at least the skiers out here like it uh, a little bit better than the farmers. At least, yeah, uh, makes sense. Uh, uh, we'll get into uh, talk a little more uh, detail. Um, your company AEA uh, and. Acres USA, we have a few things in common. Um, one of those is that we use the phrase eco-agriculture to define the type of agriculture that we want to support and that we try to coach and, and teach to. Uh, I'm always curious to ask people what their def- definition of eco-agriculture is, because uh, I do hear it out there, and, and everybody usually has a slightly different definition that they use. So uh, would you be able to define kind of how you guys use eco-agriculture in your company? Well, I would say... Um from our perspective, the the simplest definition is often is often the best. And so, when we think of when I think of eco agriculture, I simply am looking for something that is ecologically friendly. 
And obviously, that we can also bring in the conversation that in order for it to be ecologically friendly for the long term, there also needs to be economical, et cetera, et cetera. But really, what we're looking for and what we are attempting to communicate is an agriculture which regenerates ecology. Makes sense. That uh, uh, makes a lot of sense. Do you, do you, when you explain that to your customers or, or farmers, and when you're out in the field or talking to them or at a conference, uh, do you find that they're they're they understand what that term is the first time you use it? Uh, what the term ecological is? Um, eco eco um, agriculture, I guess specific. You know, do they? Eco agriculture. Yeah. There, there's a general sense. I mean, there's lots of conversations today around biological agriculture and sustainable agriculture. Obviously, sustainable agriculture has become quite a popular buzzword. Mm-hmm. And um, eco-agriculture is often affiliated and associated with that and assumed to mean something similar. And a number of years ago, we began talking about, I specifically began talking a great deal about regenerative agriculture. And today... Regenerative agriculture is usually associated with livestock production and grass-fed beef. There's not many people thinking about regenerative agriculture in the framework of grain crops and fruit and vegetable crops, which is, I think, where we most desperately need regenerative agriculture. So I've described that we can talk about sustainability and sustainable Mm -hmm. agriculture, but sustainability is not enough. We should have no desire to sustain where we are today. We first need to have a conversation about how we can regenerate soil health, regenerate the above-ground ecology, and regenerate the environment and the ecosystem that is operating on that farm. And only once you've regenerated to a much higher point, a point where you are growing crops that are resistant to diseases and insects and have all these other things happening, only at that point can you have a conversation about true sustainability. Very few farms are at a point where they're truly sustainable from an ecological perspective today. That's that's and that's really why I wanted to 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 find those terms early and upfront because I think there's a lot of people who um, uh, anyway there's a lot of room for for wiggle room. You know when we talk about eco agriculture, we talk about sustainability. Uh, that mean that that those can be defined in in, in very diverse terms. Uh, you you wrote me something interesting this morning um, related to this and the regenerative agriculture movement um, that within that, the concept, and this is what you wrote exactly, the concept of regenerative agriculture holds three inherent promises. Uh, could you walk us through what those promises are and, 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 and how they relate to what you just said? Um, I would be happy to do that. And I think perhaps the the, the best framework with which to describe these promises is the story of how I came to be where I am today and the amazing work that I'm so inspired by. So um, I grew up on a family of fruit and vegetable farm in Northeast Ohio and growing fresh market fruits and vegetables. In the early 2000s, our primary crops were tomatoes, cucumbers, cantaloupe, zucchini, kind of the mainstream, green beans and so forth. And we had a three-year period, 2002, three, and four, in which we lost greater than 70% of each of those of, of our main crops to a variety of different diseases and insects. We were completely unsuccessful at managing these pests using pesticides. At this point, we were still completely mainstream using very intense pesticide applications. And in 2004, the third year of that three-year period, we began renting a field from a neighboring farm. So 
we now had, and this field that we started renting bordered right up against one of our own fields. So we now had two fields that were right side by side. They used to be tilled up and down the slope because they were very narrow strips. Now that we were farming both of them, we switched the direction we planted rows and we started planting crops across the field border. On the new field, new soil that we had not been farming for the last decade, we had we planted this field in the cantaloupe. On the new soil at harvest time, there was no powder mildew. On the old soil, 80% of the leaves were infected with powder mildew. Wow. These were plants, the exact same variety, planted the same day, same fertilizer applications, same pesticide and fungicide applications, but two completely different outcomes. And for me, that was really the aha moment. I wanted to know what are the differences between these two plants and what allows one plant to be resistant to powder mildew when the next plant literally two feet away is susceptible. It was so pronounced that there was a knife line right down through the center of the field. In fact, there were healthy vines growing right in amongst the unhealthy vines. Wow. So... I was just going to say that's rare to see a, a, such a stark contrast right in front of your eyes. Uh, that's that, I wish everybody could have that at some point uh, to see the the, the, the then and now uh, approach to it. Do you know what was grown in that new field before you you planted in there? Um, it had been in a um, four-year rotation of a small dairy farm rotation okay. of um, alfalfa, small grains, and corn. Okay. Fascinating. So I'm sorry I didn't mean to interrupt yeah. you. Uh, uh, please, please, that's, please continue. No, that's okay. That's the, it's the type of experience that, um, as you said, it gets your attention a little bit like a two by four in the face. Right. Um, so that from that experience, I started doing a lot of studying. I was very fortunate to get uh, some exceptional mentors to guide my reading and learning and um, exposure to Acres USA, to the Acres Conference, and so forth. So my history with Acres goes back quite a long time. And throughout this process, I learned very simply that it is possible for us to grow plants that are completely resistant to diseases and insects when we manage their nutrition properly, that plants have an immune system the exact same way that we do. And when we support that immune system with the right nutrition, we can actually grow plants that are not susceptible to diseases and insects. So I think when, as I expressed earlier, when we talk about sustainability, you have to ask the question, is this ecosystem truly sustainable if pests constantly are attracted to and want to devour the crops that we are growing? So I believe one of the inherent promises of a truly regenerative agriculture model and a regenerative agriculture ecosystem is we need to be able to grow plants that are completely resistant to diseases and insects. So that, to me, is kind of the foundational piece. That is the first piece that has to be in place. If, if we want to have a truly regenerative system, we have to have that level of vitality and health and vigor because without that, that means that we are constantly dependent on pesticides and external inputs for crop control, which are inherently, not only are they inherently unsustainable, but they are by their very nature destroying life in the soil and leading to a system which is leading to entropy. It's constantly degrading and constantly declining instead of constantly improving. That, uh, um, 
a couple things you said caught caught my attention. I think one of the ones is is that level of of just explaining that it's possible that this is this whole concept of eco agriculture and creating resistant plants is possible. Uh, and I find that when I talk to you know traditional farmers or, or farmers who who do use um, more toxic measures to control, that a lot of it is just disbelief in that very principle to begin with. That that is an impossible thing to do. That if you build um, uh, these, if you if you grow these plants, that these insects will will uh, find them no matter what. Um, what? How do you usually respond uh, when you get either skepticism or questions back about that point? That's intriguing because, um, in fact, I would say my my own experience has been that there is very seldom skepticism about that because when when you begin describing how the process works, it is uh, from from a plant's perspective, it is usually common. Many farmers, in, in my experience, will say, hmm, this is really interesting because I've experienced something like this, well, they, they, where they will have observed an experience in the field where perhaps um, spider mites are infecting corn in only one section of the field but not in the rest of the field, mm-hmm. or they have aphids that show up in only part of the crop or only in the neighbor's fields but not on their fields or whatever the case might be. And so... They often have experiences where they see that pests seem to selectively favor certain crops and not others. And this can often be explained. I mean, there are, we, we talk with, and I, I often speak with agronomists who have decades of experience who have deeply studied insect travel patterns and mite travel patterns by looking at wind and temperature and environmental conditions. And they always say, you know, I've studied this very deeply, and we understand some of how insects move around and migrate, but it cannot all be explained by environment and by wind and so forth, but there are other conditions which are present in the field. So, actually, uh, my own experience has been that farmers often understand very quickly and have experienced how plants can have varying degrees of resistance to different types of pests. That's uh well you know and 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 you're you're right uh, generally the longer I talk to them what I I generally find that that is a cover response for I can't afford to do that or I don't want to or I know it's going to cost me more money so I don't want to uh, to go that route and and to go through that and so I was recently on an agriculture tour in our county here and uh, a lot of uh, traditional farmers were on that tour and uh, we we stopped by a uh, organic carrot farmer. And he was just going through the conversion process, and, and, and probably nine out of the ten questions that the farmers were asking him were expense and bottom line related versus application. And, you know, they weren't biological questions. They were questions more about bottom line and, and cost management and, and cost control behind that. Uh, you know, we, we, we know that in the end you're a much more cost-effective farm once you get to that process. But as you, do, you get, do you see those questions as well or as you work with farmers out there? We do see those questions, and um, in fact, I've observed, I had some very interesting observations about the mind frame of the most successful farm managers. Mm -hmm. So um, I founded Advancing Eco Agriculture initially as a consulting company in 2006, and from 2006 until today, which gives us um, now 10 years of history, post-season history, every year at the end of the growing season, we would sit down and rank the success that our growers were having that we were working with. Not based on their own assessment, but based on our assessment, because some growers are really excited 
when they still have a lot of opportunity left on the table. And other growers, in fact, the best growers, are never satisfied. So we would rank their success in terms of their crop performance and quality on a scale of 1 to 10. And then we group the 9s and 10s together, and we group the 1s and 2s together, and we ask, what are the differences and what are the similarities between these groups? This has been an intense learning experience. We've learned a lot agronomically, mm-hmm. and we have also learned a lot about farm management. And when, uh, as it relates specifically to to your question, uh, we've learned that the farm managers who are extraordinarily successful, who have exceptional success consistently year after year, think about economics and finances very differently than most farmers, which is that they focus 80% of their time and energy on increasing revenue. Mm -hmm. They want to understand everything about their crop that is related to increasing revenue. And they spend 20% of their time and energy focused on reducing costs. They don't ignore reducing, uh, they don't ignore costs. They're still very conscientious. They still pay very close attention. But in terms of their personal energy commitment, They don't focus most of their energy there. Less successful farm managers do the exact opposite. They spend 20% of their time focusing on increasing revenue and 80% on reducing costs. So very very different mind shift that we found separates the most successful growers. That makes sense. I know there's a lot of nervousness out there too, with with uh, guys like Amazon getting into the the organic buying game, and uh, you know what will that do to uh, to the price point that some of the more sustainable growers are beginning used to, uh, and that the market is still demanding. Do you see do you see that changing at all in your world, or is that something that um, uh, you know as as more people are doing uh, organic farming, is that that selling the farmer that they can sell their product at a higher price or that it's a more valuable price to the consumer. Do you see that ever going away at this point or or, or becoming less of a a talking point? I see only opportunity for organic and ecologically friendly growers. I see only opportunity. And uh, Joel Salzman made a comment a number of years ago in the context of 100% grass-fed beef production. He said that 100% 100% grass-fed people who are doing intensively managed rotational grazing correctly and properly can be the low-cost producer. It costs them less to produce a pound of beef than anyone else, including the people who are feeding feedlot beef with corn. And the same is true of ecological farmers growing fruit and vegetable crops or growing broadacre crops. They can be the low-cost producer. In our experience on the farms that we work with in advancing eco-agriculture, our expectation is that our farmers, the growers that we work with, are going to be substantially more profitable on every single acre when we begin working with them. That is, we, we frame everything and all of our work in the context of what is the return going to be. We do not believe that there is a need to make a long-term investment in the soil, rebuilding soil health and, and uh, rebuilding soil mineral profiles with an expected long-term payout and no short-term benefits. We believe that we need to focus specifically on the short-term benefits. Let's turn this crop around very quickly. Let's produce a large economic return very quickly and then use those resources, if necessary, to rebuild and regenerate the soil. So we actually see 
Uh, and this, this has been something that has been very profound for us. We see that farmers are more profitable, more successful, making more money when they begin adopting regenerative and organic practices consistently. I would say today um, our products are used in about 4,000 uh, with about 4,000 different growers. I guess it's more than that number now. And of those, there are about 700 farms that we have deep, deep relationships with, people that we know intimately what is happening on their farm financially and otherwise. And on every single one of those operations, we see profitability increase immediately when we begin working with them, not in two years or three years or five years down the road, but the first year. And this can happen on any type of crop. I'm not just talking about lettuce and spinach and carrots. This can happen on grain crops. It can happen on perennial crops, such as tree fruit, apples, pears, cherries. Normally crops that you expect to see a more long-term response, we expect to see a response immediately. And I think that's, if, if we want to, if we are passionate about having regenerative agriculture and sustainable agriculture become the mainstream, we need to give growers an economic incentive to show them how that is possible, how they can make more money doing that, and we won't be able to stop the change from happening. That makes sense. It might be a good time to um, have you maybe give an example of uh, either or somebody yourself or your, your AEA worked with uh, out in the field, um, maybe somebody you're working with now who came to you and said, I've, I've got a goal to create more uh, sustainable agriculture practices on my farm. Uh, kind of where you know, if do you have a good anecdote you could tell us of how you started with a, a farmer and, and where they are today, or what the process is, or how you decided what process to go through with them, and just to give somebody a, a listener who's maybe considering it or on the fence or or thinking about it some idea of of uh, what those early conversations are and how that progresses through the process. Yeah, I'd be happy to do that. So um, first of all, we don't frame ourselves as an ecological organic company. Most of the growers that we start working with are not organic growers. And they don't necessarily have a desire to become organic. In fact, most of them do not. But they do have a desire to produce better quality fruit, better quality vegetables, um, and to reduce their pesticide applications. That's what we help them accomplish. So when we first begin working with a grower, um, we do a we conduct a very thorough analysis of what is happening on their operation, uh, and I'll use. Uh, an orchard, as an example. And this, we, we do the same process. There's obviously slightly different pieces involved, but the same general process is true for grain crops, um, forage crops, fruits, vegetables. It's really all the same. We, we do an analysis of what is the soil's geological and, and nutritional profile using soil analysis. And then what is the irrigation water quality? Because irrigation water has a huge impact on nutrient availability assuming the crop is being irrigated. And then we look at the nutritional profile of the crop itself, uh, both in terms of actual lab analysis, what is the tissue analysis or the sap analysis of the tree or the plant that we're growing, and most importantly, what are the diseases and what are the insects that are present? What are the problems? Because for us, every disease fits a specific nutritional profile. If a grower tells us that he's having problems with powdery mildew on cucumbers, in our mind, that immediately translates to um, his plants have a challenge absorbing adequate levels of manganese and silicon along with a few other elements. 
So we immediately think of that problem in terms of the nutritional profile. So we can actually diagnose what the nutritional imbalances are that are happening on a farm purely by the diseases and the insects that are present. So then once we have all of this information, we have a profile of what's happening and what's going on, we'll make a series of recommendations that include soil amendments, they will include how to manage irrigation water, they will include foliar applications, and they also fit into what are the economics of the crop, what are the farm's economics, and um, what is the speed of the response that uh, is necessary for the farm economically. So usually um, one of our favorite tools, and I, I will definitely be speaking about this um, at the pre-conference seminar, one of our favorite tools is the use of foliar applications. Historically, people have used foliar applications of nutrients to address specific deficiencies. If we, have, if we don't have enough zinc, we can add some zinc as a foliar, etc. And from my perspective, this fundamentally misses the biggest opportunity for using foliar sprays. I believe that foliar sprays are an incredibly powerful tool because they can turbocharge the photosynthetic engine. And when you put on a properly designed foliar spray, you can spend a few dollars per acre, a very small amount of money, and substantially increase the quantity of sugar that a plant produces every single day, every 24-hour photo period, as much as three to four times increase. So when you increase that volume of sugar production, everything else is just off to the races. The root system starts growing very quickly. Bacterial population and soil profiles start really taking off. And you get this tremendous crop response. So when we have, when we start working with farms, particularly farms that are in uh, financially distressed situations, which is quite common, then we will begin by working with foliar applications because we can put on a very inexpensive application and produce a tremendous crop response and quickly turn the situation around. Mm -hmm. That's, uh, uh, I'm going to take one minute here just to remind our, our listeners that you're listening to Tractor Time, and our guest today is John Kempf. Uh, John will be speaking at our uh, 2017 Acres USA EcoAg Conference and Trade Show and leading a couple classes in our EcoAg U uh, sessions earlier in that week. Uh, he's a very popular speaker uh, and just got through talking about his work with uh, and, and how he introduces farmers to the process of fixing problems that they're seeing on their farm. Um, thank you again, John, for joining us today. Uh, when, when you're out in the field, it's one thing to work with a farmer one-on-one -on -one and, and, and talk about, um, you know, topical treatments and, and applications, uh, yet you're coming to our conference and you're going to talk to a lot of farmers at one time, and I know that, that that's got to be a little bit of a challenge and an opportunity as well to speak a little bit more generally uh, to them. Um, and you've mentioned in a video I was watching with you, and you said on a on a you you're on a mission to change agriculture and to change the way food is grown in the world. Uh, when you're talking to farmers, um, you know what's your approach to talk to them, and kind of what what should they expect when they attend your uh, your talk this year at our conference? <laughs> uh, you've asked a couple of different. I questions did, yeah. There. So, uh, <laughs> I, I, so I, I can simplify those for you if you want. I guess the first one would be uh, uh, what um, let, let, let's talk about. Um, speaking to farmers in general and, and teaching what you do uh, uh, and, and kind of why you've decided to not just run a company to teach people, but to go out and, and speak generally at conferences and speak around the world to different audiences. Uh, what, yeah. what drives so, you to do that? So 
Um, this this actually leads back to the, the question that we had started with, is what are the three inherent promises of regenerative agriculture? And I spoke to the first one, which was um, disease and insect resistance, the capacity to produce crops that are resistant to diseases and insects. And, of course, what we then observed, what I became really passionate about was when I learned that when you grow plants that have a really functional immune system, they also have the capacity to transfer that immunity to the people who consume that food. Mm. So um, if you take blueberries, for example, mm-hmm. blueberries are supposed to be a really nutrient-dense crop, and they're really good for you because they enhance your immune system. Why do they enhance our own immune systems? Because of the high concentrations of anthocyanins. And yet um, there is... Research which indicates that the anthocyanin content of a blueberry can vary by a factor of 25x based on variety and environment. So you can have two pounds of blueberries, but one pound can have 25 times more anthocyanins than another. And as you can imagine, it's going to have a much bigger impact on our own health. So the idea that we can grow food as medicine became really inspiring. But then there was something else that we observed in the field, which was the capacity of plants to regenerate soil health. So within the area of biological agriculture, regenerative agriculture, there is the idea and the paradigm that it takes healthy soil to grow a healthy crop. And that is true, but we have fundamentally missed, I believe, the shortest pathway to producing healthy soil. The fastest way to produce extremely healthy soil is to grow a really healthy crop. Mm-hmm. And when I described earlier the use of foliar applications, if you can increase the sugar production of a tomato plant or a strawberry plant or a corn plant or a wheat plant by a factor of 4x over that plant's entire lifetime, you're not going to get a four times yield response. You're not going to get four times the plant biomass. Right. The majority of that increased sugar production is going to go out through the root system as root exudates to feed soil biology. And that is the shortcut to regenerating soil health. We have documented increasing organic matter on farms growing corn on corn by a half a percentage point per year over a multi-year period. Uh, we've documented increases in soil organic matter, substantial increases in soil organic matter on strawberries and tomatoes where we're growing strawberry crops year after year on the same soil in California. So now you take all these three things together. Regenerative agriculture has the promise to grow plants that are resistant to diseases and insects, that are growing food as medicine, and that regenerate soil health. When I realized the immensity and the opportunity of those model of this model to produce such tremendous change, I became incredibly inspired, and I made it my personal mission. What I'm really passionate about is having this model of plant nutrition and growing crops become the mainstream, the status quo around the world against which everything else is measured. But I realized also that I cannot go and talk to conventional growers, conventional farmers about regenerating soil health. I can't talk to them about growing food as medicine. I can't talk to them about growing disease and insect resistant crops because these are not the things that they care about. These are not things that are that are important to them. They, they are important on one level, but they're not important enough to get them to actually drive change. Right. I realized that if we really want growers to change, we need we achieve what we incentivize. 
we need to give them an economic incentive to change. So this is why in our work at Advancing Eco Agriculture, we focus exclusively on the economics. Hmm. We want to make certain that when a grower begins using regenerative models of plant nutrition, his profitability increases, and he becomes more economically viable and financially successful as a grower. When that happens, then the adoption of these models will quickly become mainstream, and we see that happening today where we have many growers who hear about the success that their neighbors and friends are having, and they want to begin using these systems as well. It's not because they want to become organic. It's not because they want to eliminate pesticides. It's because they want the economic success that they see their growers experiencing by using these plant nutrition systems. That, that makes a lot of sense, and I think that there's a lot of overlap there with a lot of different social changes or, or, or you know, whether it's different energy sources out there that uh, for a long time the only reason to really move to alternative energy sources was because it was altruistic, but it was going to be more expensive and it was going to be hard to set up and maintenance was going to be expensive. And now that we've seen, you know, that scale change a little bit, people are a lot more willing to go into a hardware store and buy a solar panel than they ever would have 20 years ago. So I'm wondering, yeah, in the ag world, is there a parallel there? And, and is there a point that we will, you know, how far away are we from that point where it be it's it's going to be just as easy for farmers to do a have a sustainable ecological based farm versus a traditional farm because of the, the maybe the knowledge is out there the incentives are out there and the consumer demand is out there and all those those lines up it, it doesn't feel like we're that far away from that but I've been saying that for 15 years so I wanted to ask you that as well uh, I, I would say we are there yeah we have the knowledge we have the information people are doing it uh, people are being very successful at it. it. It's it's no longer, it's not a question of being out there anymore. Yeah. Um, so I think it, it already exists today. Um, there are, there is one substantial difference mm. between regenerative crop nutrition management systems and the currently mainstream, which is that they are more management intensive. Mm. You have to pay attention. And that is true for disease control, for insect control, for weed control, for monitoring what is happening in the field with the plants from a nutritional perspective. Um, it's, it's, you, you have to pay much closer attention than you did historically by simply just right. spraying on a pesticide and being able to forget about it. So there is an element of management intensity, but aside from that element, um, by and large, for the most part, tools exist today. We have biocontrols, we have biostimulants. Uh, there are enough biological type uh, pest control products and so forth available in the marketplace today that uh, we're no longer dependent on synthetic harmful inputs to grow most crops. Yeah. Well, and that makes a lot of sense. And that 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 when you tie that all into the bottom line, um, and you and you make it more. Not, I mean, if you came to me and as a business person, you said, "I can help your bottom line. All you have to do is pay attention." My next question would probably be, "Okay, that seems pretty doable. How do we get that done?" Um, that there's certainly not the uh, huge burdens there um, that we have to get around uh, at this point. So, and I, I would like to make one more sure. uh, share one more thought on this, which is simply that. Uh, when I talk about increasing profitability uh, and increased financial performance on a farm, I am not talking about increases of three to five percent. There, there are. We, when we think about the yield potential of crops, 
I generally group them into kind of three different categories. There is one cro- one group, which are ju- the vegetative crops, spinach and cabbage and kale and lettuce and alfalfa. Mm-hmm. You can only get so many plants into a square foot and into an acre. And as a result, the yield output of those of each acre and each square foot has a cap that can only be slightly increased. Then you have another group of crops, which we refer to as the multi or the single fruiting crops, such as corn or small grains, where you have all the blossoming and all the reproduction happening in a very short condensed time window. And for these crops, um, actually, let me refine that thought just a little bit. Um, I mixed it in my head with something else. Um, we have these crops which we have, uh, I'll call them, um, they're very developed crops in terms of our agronomic understanding. So processing tomatoes would be an example. Um, strawberries production would be an example. So 20 years ago, strawberries in California, the average yield was 4,000 flats per acre. Today it's 10,000 flats per acre. 20,000 years, or, yeah, 20, years, 20 years ago, the average tomato production in California was um, 30 to 35 tons per acre. Today, it's 60 to 80 tons. So there's been a shift in some of these crops, but that is not true of all crops. If you look at uh, pecans or Mm. almonds or citrus, for example, there is still a lot of untapped potential. This is true of many tree fruit, of many vegetable crops, and of many grain crops as well, where we see that um, well, if we take soybeans, for example, it's relatively easy to increase the pod, to double the pod count on a soybean plant. That's not a problem at all. So we still have a lot of these crops where uh, when we work with growers on uh, peaches or nectarines, for example, mm-hmm. we have documentation where in the first year, right out of the gate, we see 20 to 40% increases in profitability per acre. And that happens as a combination of increased yield and increased quality of yield because those trees have a lot of untapped potential that hasn't been tapped into. If you go to work for a corn grower, you're not going to get 20 to 40% profitability jump because that plant has been um, maximized to a large degree, but there are many other plants which have not. So there's a lot of untapped potential that mainstream plant nutrition models will not be able to tap into because of how they think about managing that plant. That's um, thank you for stopping and going into that. I appreciate that. That's um, that that's uh, yeah. It, it gets down to the nuance in the end, and I think that's important um, uh, for folks. And, and just sort of to echo what you said previously too is is that um, yeah, these practices aren't aren't won't always help in the same way every single crop and every single cycle, but in the general over the long term, that's what you're measuring. Is it? Did I get that correctly uh, as a summary? Yeah. Okay. Uh, the uh, 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 where and this is my last question for, you, and I, and I want to give you a chance too to to talk a little bit about AEA and and where you guys are, what you guys are doing, and what you're going to be showing off at the conference and all this stuff as well. But uh, my last question for you is, ten years from now, when we look out, and I'm going to ask you to put the crystal ball out a little bit. Uh, say you know we we are we see this increased you know growth in, in double digits every year and in, in specific with organic farming, we know that same thing is happening out there with you know the non certified folks who are still employing uh, sustainable practices. Uh, where are we 10 years from now? And, and, and will, would people be able to tell the difference uh, with what they're shopping for at a grocery store? Or how, how will people be able to tell this, the difference that this movement is growing? 
So um, I think the, the differences are going to be minimal between um, the what we currently term as the conventional and the organic label. And um, I personally see this as a good thing, a very good thing. Mm-hmm. Uh, if, you, if we look at the situation that currently exists in Europe, for example, in Europe there is practically no difference, mm-hmm. and there's very little interest in large parts of Europe in buying organic fruits and vegetables because the differences between organic and conventionally grown are minimal. And they're continuing to decline every year as fewer and fewer pesticides are being permitted to be used. So um, I believe that in 10 years from now, there are going to be substantially less differences between conventional organic produce and crops in general than there are today. And I perceive that as being a very good thing. Organic growers within the organic domain um, may have very protectionist feelings about their label, which is completely understandable. At the same time, we have to ask the question, isn't the goal, isn't the objective to have uh, organics, in whatever way you chose to define them, to become the mainstream? Isn't the goal to move the mainstream on organic closer together? And so if we can achieve that goal from a global perspective, I believe that we're having a very positive impact on the quality of food that is grown and consumed in the world. And I think that that is, to me, that seems to be a very good thing. I don't see any downsides to that other than there would be, of course, a perceived downside from the growers who are growing organically today. So, and this also speaks to the question you asked earlier, which I didn't answer correctly, on Amazon versus uh, Amazon acquisition of Whole Foods. I see this as a tremendous opportunity. Mm -hmm. Um, Whole Foods, both Whole Foods and Amazon have one characteristic in common, which is that they are both incredible incubators. Mm. They allow small people and small players an easy entry and to get started small and then grow and scale over time. Is it going to exert price pressure on organics? I expect that it probably will. And um, again, I would ask the question, why is that a bad thing? It may be a bad thing from the perspective of the producer, but from the perspective of the consumer, uh, it's, as you know, when mm-hmm. price decreases, you can expect the demand to increase. And our goal should be to have high-quality organic food become economically accessible to the mainstream, not to just a select audience. That's, um, I, uh, I really appreciate how you said that. It's hard to um, – I always feel so inspired talking to people who, um, like yourself, who are doing this day-to-day uh, and really helping drive this change around the world. It's a, it's an amazing accomplishment um, of which what what folks like yourself and what you've achieved, what the uh, Advancing Eco Ag, your your company has achieved. Uh, for people who want to learn more about John Kemp's um, company as well, you can go to www.advancingecoag.com. Uh, we'll have that link on our website as well uh, with a podcast. Um, John, I, I thank you so much for being with us today. Is there anything else you'd, you'd like to say or share with our with our audience before we, we stop today? Um, one final thought relevant to the Acres Conference coming up soon, which yes. is the these farmers that have the characteristic spending 80% of their time and energy learning about how to increase revenue. Many of these farmers would identify a specific point Um, On cherries, for example, cherry production, they get compensated for cherries based on size and firmness. So these farmers make sure that they understand the plant's physiology deeply on how to 
produce larger size and larger firms. They do not delegate that to a consultant. They will delegate their bookkeeping to an accountant, but they will not delegate that knowledge to an outside agronomist. So as uh, for all of you listeners, all of you farmers out there, figure out what it is that you make money on. Why do you make money with a specific crop? What are the key quality parameters? And focus on learning about those quality parameters. So that should give you an incentive to come to the Acres Conference. I look forward to seeing some of you there. And, uh, yeah, talk more soon. John, we uh, well, I can't wait to see you at the conference and shake your hand uh, in person uh, next time as well. So uh, thank you so much for uh, joining us today. Uh, everybody, thank you for listening to uh, today's uh, podcast. Again, uh, John Kempf is the founder of Advancing Eco Agriculture, a crop consulting company. Uh, he's a resident in Ohio. Uh, he grows up, he grew up around farms. He's uh, on a farms every day, and he will be at our Acres USA Eco Ag Conference and Trade Show in Columbus, Ohio this December. Uh, John, thanks again for joining us today. Thank you for listening to another episode of Tractor Time, uh, brought to you by Acres USA. If you'd like to reach us, you can email us at podcast at acresusa.com. That's A-C-R-E-S-U-S-A.com. Or you can call us at 1-800-355-5313. Again, check out our conference in Columbus, Ohio, December 5th through 8th this year to meet all the eco-ag experts we can wrangle in one place. Thanks again for listening and tune in next week. Bye-bye.